Hey, I'm Laurel from London, UK. I'm Andy from Philadelphia. I'm Danielle from Denver, Colorado. The Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. This is at MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Mary Roach. Her numerous best-selling books are scientific inquiries of a humorous nature. Her first big seller was called Stiff. It was all about what happens after we die, not up in the sky in heaven, but to our bodies right here on Earth. She recently wrote Bonk about the science of doing it, and her new book is called Packing for Mars, The Curious Science of Life in the Void. It's about all the little questions that crop up when we think about what it would be like to travel to Mars or just be in space in general. It's also super funny. Mary Roach, welcome to the Sandy Young America. Thank you. Um, so, Mary, were you the kind of person who was into the idea of the romance of spaceflight before you started this, or, or did you start it for another reason? I seem to be the only person. Well, I was 10 when we landed on the moon, and I somehow never saw it. I didn't have any idea that it was going on. I was kind of next door playing at the Balch's house or something. So I, I was never a uh, romance of space type person. I kind of, I, I, I ended up over at NASA for a story years ago at the, the neutral buoyancy tank, a hu- that huge, huge swimming pool where they submerge pieces of the space station as though or a shipwreck. And they, uh, you know, rehearse spacewalks. There's just a lot of things to geek out over. So that's where I first got kind of interested in this. I imagine everyone there wearing horn-rimmed glasses and short-sleeved dress shirts. Um, That's not far off. If 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 you go on NASA TV, which I love, NASA TV is just the raw feed. And you look, they'll sometimes just have the camera trained on mission control, even though nothing's going on. It's just a guy eating a sandwich or looking at his computer. And they are they are wearing the short sleeve dress shirt, blue or white usually. Yeah. One of the things uh, that I found interesting in your book was that it, it, it to some extent challenges this idea that we have of what an astronaut is. And I, I think there's this character on the uh, NBC show 30 Rock called Astronaut Mike Dexter, Uh, who's the dream husband of uh, the protagonist played by Tina Fey. And his basic qualities are that he's handsome and American and an astronaut. And I think that we think of astronauts as just having those qualities. Oh, yeah, yeah. What kind of person is an astronaut in actuality? That Buzz Lightyear thing, that kind of held all the way through Apollo. That's really what they, that, that's kind of what they were because they were looking for people who were, you know, these were guys who were going and doing really risky things. They were actually exploring and uh, going and doing things that hadn't been done that were really pretty hairy. So they were Air Force fighter pilots, you know, um, folks who were testing new um, aircraft for the military. They were pretty much kind of your macho, aggressive, virile, often blonde, blue-eyed men. And now... Now that we've been, you know, we spent 10 years just kind of going in circles around Earth, and it's pretty, it's become a little routine. And also the missions are longer, and they're six people uh, in a small space. So you actually don't want someone with a huge outsized ego. You want uh, 
and that sort of wrong right stuff thing is the wrong stuff. So you want um, some of the astronaut, the recommended astronaut attributes these days are things like um, ability to form stable and quality interpersonal relationships, <laughs> fairness, flexibility, sense of humor. I mean, you want you want people who you'd want to spend. You know, if you're working closely with someone in a small space, you can't you know slam the door and go for a drive. You kind of want people who are really, really reasonable and uh, deferential and just kind of the exact opposite of what the ideal Tina Fey husband dude is. When you're describing the process by which they hire these astronauts, it strikes me as almost like a a casting session for the real world, uh, only it's a version of the real world where it's the worst version you could possibly imagine of the real world. (laughs) You mean in terms of it being really boring to watch? Exactly. Like yeah. just everything that they're looking for in a real world cast yeah, member yeah. is the opposite of what they're, except for that they might like to have a teacher. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, they, uh, the Canadian Space Agency tried to, they, they, they did, the, uh, they chose some astronauts a while back and they really tried to do reality TV. They would, they were filming the process and they had the candidates, I mean the applicants, they had them doing things like, if you go onto the Canadian Space Agency website and you click on these videos and there's just like kettle drums banging in this really kind of sort of Mission Impossible Tom Cruise kind of soundtrack and these people like diving into a swimming pool with a wave generator and trying to escape from a, the uh, body of a helicopter that's on fire or sinking or something, which is really kind of insane when you think about it because it's just not you know you really what you want is is somebody who's really good at dealing with long stretches of boredom and tedium which is what the japanese space agency was testing they had this really great little uh, exercise where they had them they put 10 the 10 finalists were in an isolation chamber and one of the things they had them do was an origami test they had it was called a thousand cranes and they had each of the applicants had to do 100 cranes and string them on on a string, which then a string of cranes was then given to a psychologist who would look at the first one versus the last one, and you know were they able to maintain their focus with this tedious task, and were they was their attention to detail still good? And it was kind of a brilliant test in a way, considering what these people are really going to be spending most of their time doing. You found some really remarkable things in transcripts of NASA missions. Did you just sit down with 10,000 pages of transcripts of missions and just look for the word fart? That is exactly what I did because <laughs> they, they are they're PDF searchable by keywords. So I would sit – I would open up my computer. Ed, my husband, Ed, would be watching a Giants game and I would just sit there going through, you know, mission after mission, you know, turd, <laughs> fart, <laughs> Urine, <laughs> because it's you know it really is. They're literally thousands of pages long, uh, but you do really you you come across some amazing moments in, in in amongst all the the jargon and tedium. What do you find in those amazing moments? Well, I was I was focused on a, a couple of missions in particular, Gemini Seven, which was uh, the the, long, the first time we'd been in space for two weeks. It, it was a kind of a dress rehearsal for the moonshot. And and NASA was trying to figure out, well, well, what will happen to two guys who spend two weeks without showering in a suit, you know, not able to bathe, kind of hot, sticky? Like, is it actually something that you can do to a human being and, and, and expect them to make it through? And 
it really almost wasn't something. They, they ended up taking off their suits. But anyway, so I'd be going through and there'd be these moments because the flight surgeon was very involved in this particular mission. So he'd get on at mission control and he'd be like, Gemini 7, this is Houston. Frank, are you are you having any dandruff problems up there? You know, just like two guys <laughs> orbiting Earth talking about skincare. Uh, so it was just, uh, and they go back and forth on the, you know, they wanted to get out of their suits. They were unbelievably uncomfortable. And, and you know, there have been simulations back in the 60s on Earth to just specifically answering these questions. And they found that the underwear literally decompose after a few weeks. And so they're, 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 you know, they're itchy. They're really, they're really feeling uncomfortable. And they really wanted to get out of their suits. But Mission Control... NASA was uh, really uncomfortable with this. And it was this back and forth. And they were, you know, they they finally let one of them take off his suit. They let uh, Lovell get out of his suit. And so he's in his underwear. And then... Uh, <laughs> That's Tom Hanks, right? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I think so. <laughs> I yeah, think yeah. so, too. So, so they, yeah, they let... So he let him get out of his, uh, his suit. And then um, Borman wants to get out of his. And they go, okay, Borman can get out of his. But, okay, Jim, you'll have to get back in yours. And then Lovell goes... I'd really prefer not to. <laughs> it's just like a quiet mutiny going on up there. It's remarkable the issues that uh, that come up that when you haven't thought of, when you haven't had any experience with them. I mean, one of the remarkable things to me about the book was just the idea that in this space between uh, the end of World War II and the moon landing, we just had to figure out everything about basically what it's like to be in space at all. Um, were there things that they had to figure out that even you, it, it hadn't occurred to? They had to figure out everything. I mean, even just the uh, plan- the simple act of planting a flag on the moon. First of all, you, know, you want it to be patriotic and sort of photogenic, telegenic. You want it to be flying. Well, there's no atmosphere. There's no wind. So they had to send, get the engineers to build a telescoping crossbar. So it's actually more of a a diminutive patriotic curtain. It's not a flag at all. They couldn't figure out, well, because it's a bulky thing, where are they going to store it? They decided, oh, we'll put it on the on the side of the ladder where Neil Armstrong will come down and blow his historic line. Um, they'll, and then they thought, no, 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 wait, can't do that because the uh, when when the uh, lander comes down, the blast that slows it down, that'll melt the thing. So they had it, they sent it back to engineering, got this protective sheath that's highly insulated so it won't melt. And then they had to worry, will the astronauts be able to pull the flag out of the sheath because they have these pressurized gloves and they're hard, it's hard to manipulate things and they'll look like idiots in front of the eyes of the world. So it was this months long. And in the end, they Neil Armstrong could only get it into the soil about six inches and barely standing. And it, he has speculated that when the lander took off, the blast blew it over. So it's probably just lying in the dust. And that's to say nothing of the fact that they had to address the issue of whether it was even legal to put a flag on the moon at all. Oh yeah, there's this whole. It was a, there was it was called the the committee on symbolic activities for the first lunar landing, <laughs> and the committee started meeting months ahead of time. The first thing that they were discussing is, will this be a violation of the outer space treaty? In other words, will we appear to be saying we have conquered the moon because the, you know we are a signer of the outer space treaty, which says nobody gets to own any planetary bodies. Uh, so they they were thinking for a while, okay, instead of planting a flag, maybe we'll set down a small box containing miniature flags of all the nations, <laughs> which is an incredibly untelegenic and geeky thing to do. So that was dismissed. And they finally thought, but well, we'll, we'll put them we'll, out in yeah. the shape of Abraham Lincoln's head. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, you're constantly referring to these studies and like committee reports, and they all have stupid names like that, uh, just absurdly complicated, ridiculous names. And I found myself wondering as I read the book how much time you spent reading these committee reports from weird space committees, and if you had any particular favorite weird reports that you read. Yeah, well, I found the one that was the, the, the mother load was this thing it was from 1964. It was the Committee for Nutrition in Space and Related Waste Problems. <laughs> and it was these, it was a bunch of guys, you know, re- thinking really far outside the box. There's papers on um, basically eating your spacecraft on the way home, you know, t- the parts <laughs> that you're not going to need anymore, you would make out of edible proteins and you would just eat those on the way home. Then you don't have to pack as much food. There was a guy <laughs> who was talking about uh, you, how the astronauts, he calculated it all out. You could actually have edible clothing. So you, when, when you wore them for a while and they began to be unpleasant to wear, you would then want to eat them. I mean, it's just... Especially because they've already been marinated. <laughs> that's hard. That's right. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the humor and science writer Mary Roach. Her new book is called Packing for Mars, The Curious Science of Life in the Void. Let's talk a little bit about the effects that space travel has on the body, um, besides making it extra smelly. Right. Um, One of them is motion sickness. Now, it's rare to find an astronaut who will admit to motion sickness. Uh, Why is that? Especially in the early days, uh, nowadays not so much. But in the early, yeah, in during Apollo and Gemini, every, I mean, every, almost all of them felt sick, but they wouldn't admit it. And and I'll give you a quote. It's uh, Frank Borman. I love Frank Borman. Frank Borman. He he didn't want to admit it because he said I didn't want him to think I was some nugget on a summer cruise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was embarrassing. It wasn't manly. It's not manly to get sick to your tummy. So they, uh, it was the first guy who really came out and brought it out of the closet, Rusty Schweikert. He was, uh, it became an issue for him because it hit him right when he was about to put on his spacesuit and do, uh, he was going to be testing some life support systems. And that, when you're talking about being in a suit with a helmet, you know, you can't hold a vomit bag to your face because you've got a helmet on. And, and it's not that there's a worry that you're going to drown in your own vomit like Jimmy. Hendrix, uh, because y- you have a cough reflex, and unless you're really, really, really drunk, your cough reflex will save you, and you will cough up whatever you inhale. The concern is that you would have a lot of visor splatter, and you would be effectively blinded by your own vomitus. <laughs> <laughs> I like to work that word in whenever I can. <laughs> you wrote in this special space plane, the one that goes really high up in the air and then drops really low uh, and simulates zero gravity. Um, they do this for quote unquote for research purposes. They send college students up here, all up there all year. Although I imagine it's more like the time that I got to fly in the Red Baron pizza plane. Um, <laughs> it may have some public relations value. Uh, but what what was that experience like? And and what do we learn about motion sickness from being up there and, and the stuff they do to people up there? The uh, well, they, the nickname of it is the Vomit Comet. It's a C nine. It's a great big plane, and it's been gutted. The seat there's no seats except in the back, uh, in the way back. And actually, what they're mainly doing, aside from the student flight opportunities program, which is what I went up with, uh, the the main thing that they're doing anytime they fly any kind of new piece of equipment or technology, you know, from a, a, a thruster to a toilet. 
they've got to make sure it actually does work in zero gravity before they send it up. So they haul it over to Ellington Field and they board it, uh, put it on one of these planes and, and test it. And you have about 22 seconds of weightlessness at a time and you do 30 some parabolas so or 30 you know up and down we should mention that they they started this program after they tried to te- test a, a space toaster in the underwater zero gravity tank <laughs> yeah, yeah that was bad um i talked to charles borland who's uh, the the retired food science food scientist nasa guy he uh, he was on one of these weightless flights he was testing a bunch of food uh, packaging and spoons and making everything, making sure everything worked in zero gravity. But on the flight at the same time, they were testing one of the toilets. And he has this fabulous description of, uh, you know, he's down on one end and then there's a curtain. And, uh, you know, as, as the plane comes up, you know, because when it goes up over the top and down that you have the zero G. So as the plane starts to crest, you could hear behind the curtain. You could sort of see the toilet floating and the, hear a guy going like, go, 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 go. <laughs> because he's got, the guy's got 20 two seconds to produce and uh the guy he failed it was it was a sad and expensive exercise and um the yeah (laughs) difficulties of testing toilets in zero gravity on the subject of changes to the body um another one of the big changes that happens to the body is um a, a wasting um, tell me about uh tell me about what happens to your muscles and bones when you're um, in zero gravity? Uh, essentially, they start to go away uh, because you're not using them. It's kind of a use it or lose it situation with a lot of the um, human frame. You're, you get a, a tremendous amount of muscle atrophy because you're not walking now. You're flying. You're floating. You don't actually need any lower body muscle at all. And so you get this tremendous bone loss and muscle loss and uh, all, and, and other effects too. I mean, I, there's there's three or four other uh, things that are happening to the body as well because they have to do with the fluid shifting to the upper part of the body. They test this uh, with what may be the most amazing government job ever conceived <laughs> of, something that is something that Newt Gingrich is sure to bring up should he run for president. <laughs> yes. Um, tell me about it. Yeah, uh, the bed rest facility is what it's called. And it, this is a place where NASA pays people to lie in bed for months at a time, lounging around in their pajamas, watching television, playing video games, surfing the net. Uh, the, the catch is that you cannot even sit up. You have to lie down, and also you're slightly tilted downward so that you get that same fluid shift. And you're, so your nose is sort of stuffed up, and it's, it's, a little un, it's uncomfortable the first couple of weeks till you sort of adjust. And, and, and the, the, the real downer is that a bedpan is involved. <laughs> you're not getting up for anything. And that's, um, other than that, there's some people, you know, if you're a video game uh, person or you have a novel you want to finish, some people th- just love this. I mean, it's just like a, a chance to, uh, to just be forced to do one thing. Uh, and, uh, but the other, what, the reality when I went there and I interviewed people, it's really kind of sort of, it's a, like a modern day debtor's prison. It's people who are like, okay, I've got no money and I'm in debt. If I go and spend three months stuck in there, I can't spend any more money. I'll come out, I'll have $17,000. I'll get out of debt. I'll buy a coin-operated laundromat and life will be good. It's sort of like equivalent to those people who work on a, a salmon ship in Alaska or like do improv on a cruise ship. 
Yeah, exactly. You, yeah, you, there's no, there's not a lot of opportunities to spend the money, <laughs> and uh, the food. You know, you get room and board. You collect a chunk of money when you come out. Except and, that you have yeah. the internet, so you can buy anything. Well, that, yeah, that's actually that is true. The, the, what, the guy who runs it said it's the most popular stop on the UPS route. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the other great hazard of uh, working in space is that you are constantly irradiated. Um, what might that mean for uh, people who are in space longer than, longer even than the current, you know, month, two month, three month periods? That could mean uh, sterility. That could mean cancer, uh, which is why NASA, when they do talk about a Mars mission, which they don't very much anymore these days. Uh, would They talk about sending older folks, as they put it, uh, because if you were in your 60s and you headed off on a two, three-year mission to Mars, um, um, you're getting, well, backing up just a minute, you get irradiated because you're in space you don't have the protection of the Earth's atmosphere, which absorbs solar radiation, and you, the Earth's magnetic field, that's also gone, so you get a lot of cosmic radiation and it you know you, you get you can get some dangerous mutations and but the thing with cancer is usually from the time you get the mutation to the time you get cancer is you know 10 20 years so you know these are folks they'd be you know 70 80 by the time they would get the cancer and they probably figure you know I might get I might have died at that point anyway and if I get to die on Mars that's not a bad way to go so that's kind of the scenario we're looking at they would not send young people certainly not people who hadn't had children yet it seems like one of the big conflicts of space travel is whether the difficulty and uh, uh, expense of sending human beings is justifiable. What are the relevant concerns, and, and where did you where did you end up on this scale relative to where you were when you started uh, researching the book? The argument is well, you can do the science with robotic landers, and you can do it more cheaply, and you don't have to put any humans at risk. Uh, so why in God's name would you send a human being up there? And I absolutely understand that, but I still really would love to see a Mars mission. And I just I just imagine it just, because you just, you, you know, it's, it's enough to just look up at the moon and go, man, we've, we got people up there. To me, it's just this, you know, I'm, I'm kind of moved by these completely impractical and outrageous outlays of cash for no other reason than to just say, I bet we can do this. <laughs> it makes me sad to think I, you know, I'll probably die before it ever happens. Does the science, is that even anything? That's what I always wonder about when I hear that argument. I mean, I think it's cool to know what kind of rocks are on the moon, but it's probably more valuable to me to know that a dude was there. Well, me too. I mean, the, the science matters to the people who do the science. If you're a planetary geologist and, you know, yeah, you can send a lander, but it takes, you know, it's like doing science in this incremental baby step way. Whereas if you sent a team of geologists, they'd just use their intuition. They'd look around and go, all right, I can tell you what happened here. So there is an argument to be made about the science, but I'm, I'm with you. I'm honestly, I'm just like, it'd be so cool. <laughs> Um, let's talk for a second about gross stuff for the benefit of our podcast audience before we go. Yes. Um, 
Uh, it's it's but sexual and excretory functions are the two things that you're not supposed to address uh, on the public airwaves. But um, now that we're in the digital only version of this program, we can address them. Yeehaw! Um, so we <laughs> talked about we talked about and Lord knows they're addressed in this book. Um, we talked about pooping in a bag. I was I was um, kind of almost saddened to learn in a sort of melancholy way. That the early that the early astronauts' main plan was basically just to shut down their bodily functions while they were in space. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it was well. They had the the the, the low residue food eventually helped them. But the, yeah, the uh, the for the first few flights, which were just you know hours or days, the solution to waste management was a constipated astronaut. That's what they did. They were, and, and they tried Gemini 7. They, it was a, a two-week uh, mission, and Borman was trying to make it through the whole time. <laughs> he made it to day nine, I think, you know, and, oh, uh, and he couldn't hold it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> they, um, yeah, they because imagine, you're in, you're, it's like you're sitting on a love seat with this guy. You're, you're, you're right there, and uh, you have no privacy at all, and you've got to, like, pull down what you're wearing. Space and, pants. And the bag, you know, it's got adhesive, which apparently never really... It was it was this curved adhesive band that never really fit the curve of anybody's butt, and and <laughs> so and plus you had it, it, without gravity you don't have what they call good separation because <laughs> it's not you know normally on a toilet you got the the mass of the material growing mass grow you know more gravity grow more gravitational pull eventually breaks away well it doesn't do that in space so. I want to clarify for our podcast audience when yes. you say material you're referring to caca duty I, exactly right yes caca duty. Very good. Yes. So the material, right, the cock-a-duty, the CD, <laughs> it just, it just kind of hovers there. So in order to get good separation, what the Gemini and Apollo guys had to do is use what was called a finger caught. <laughs> <laughs> that was just really, it's, it's, it's you know, the, the orders of magnitude worse than, you know, using a New York Times sleeve to pick up your own dog's poop. This is your own. You are your own dog here. <laughs> you know, and you're like you're kind of urging the stuff down to the bottom of the bag because you've got to seal it off. You've got to, well, first you put in germicide and then you would, uh, which is kind of like this little soy sauce packet, and you would have to mush that thoroughly through the material because mm -hmm. if, they, if you didn't, uh, the bacteria would continue to grow and they would, you know, they would off gas, uh, they would fart, and then you you know the bag could explode, and that's just not what you want. Could have a fart explosion. Yeah. <laughs> Lovell told me sometimes when he was really feeling passive aggressive, he'd hand he'd hand the bag to Frank Borman and go, "I'm busy, Frank. You do this." <laughs> the, the germicide mushing, that is. So, what technologies have they developed to improve a system that originally involved a kind of uh, a kind of pee condom that went on your wiener and um, a poop bag. Yes, the urine containment device and the fecal containment system. Sure. I believe you're correct. Yes. Well, now we have we have uh, toilets, but they don't work like normal toilets because of that whole separation issue. Uh, so you need something to kind of pull the cuckadoody away. So that's airflow. So they've the installed those monsters from Alien. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They have basically it's a shop vac. You're you are crapping into a shop vac. It's airflow that's pulling the the uh, 
CD away from your body. And uh, but even then, it does. It's a very high tech toilet, but it's been bedeviled with a, a tremendous amount of technical difficulties with names like fecal popcorning, fecal decapitation, escapees. <laughs> They're just and these are all technical terms that I got from the. Uh, waste management engineers at, at Johnson Space Center. You give the impression in the book that you almost accidentally thought that you were allowed to use one of these. <laughs> yeah, yeah. the positional trainer. Now, this is not a real toilet. It's a toilet. Uh, it's a seat. It's an actual seat with, a, with a, a, a video camera pointing upward toward your hole. Specialist and, parts. N- yes. And now on the wall is the um, this closed circuit TV. So there's there's the uh, image right to your right on the wall. So you can, it's to learn to uh, position yourself to land, you know, because you got to kind of land at the right angle. It's a much smaller hole. It's about four inches wide as opposed to our toilets, which are about 17 inch hole you've got to work with. So, uh, you, and your angle has to be right, or you can gum up the holes where the air comes out, and then you're going to have to clean that, which is uh, a laborious and humiliating task. So sort it's of an important. absurdly, Sort of an absurdly complex uh, high-tech high space version of that little picture of a fly they put on a urinal cake in a men's bathroom. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> right, right, that's right, the, the fly, yeah, 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 yeah. A targeting system. It's a targeting system, right, it's exactly, it's a targeting system. And But I wasn't entirely clear... On the concept, and I and I said to Jim Broyan, who's the engineer, I said, "Okay, so I, I'm going to get it. Are the astronauts watching themselves before they go or as they go?" And he gets this just stricken look on his face. He goes, "Mary, that's not a working toilet. Mary, you can't defecate on that toilet." <laughs> I'm like, oh, "No, I wasn't going to. I wasn't going <laughs> to." Oh, good, good, good. Somebody once did. Somebody did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm glad that you got that in there. Yeah. Oh, well, that's wonderful. That's just delightful. <laughs> um, the other big uh, issue that we can't talk about on the radio is, uh, now that we've addressed excretory function, is sexual function. Um, you devote a chapter to it and research, among other things, potential mechanics um, uh, and the possibility that it might ever have occurred um, in one form or another. Uh, what sort of this the uh, the executive version of doing it in space? The history, N- executive version meaning what? The quick. The executive summary. Yeah. The executive summary is this: gravity is your friend. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I talked to marine biologists who study animals that mate while floating, and it's there's some difficulties involved. You kind of bounce apart. And I, but then I talked to an astronaut about this, and he's like, oh, come on. I mean, you would figure it out and think of the possibilities, and if all else fails, a roll of duct tape. <laughs> That's the executive summary. Um, it, you are pretty sure that nobody has ever done it in space, right? I don't think so. There are two missions that people gossip a lot about, one uh, uh, one over in Russia and one it was a shuttle mission where a couple got married before the, the mission, and they weren't. They didn't tell NASA. Uh, I, but I, I don't. I got my money on them not doing it because you know there goes your career. I mean, human beings talk. Somebody would have. They would have leaked. One of the astronauts. <laughs> speaking of leaking, speaking one of the astronauts leaking. announced uh, to you, or perhaps in one of his book, in one of his books, that you don't need that onanism is unnecessary because. In the night, sometimes these things just sort of take care of themselves. 
Oh, yeah. Alexander Levakin told me that. We had a very uh, rollicking conversation about sex in space. He, he said, people are always asking me this. They go, Alexander, how are you making sex in space? And I said, of course, by hand. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. But yeah, he said, and it does. He said, it happens. It happens in your sleep. It's natural. Uh, that was that was one of my top things uh, besides the guy who you found in the transcript who just announced, uh, hey, Houston, I've got a real case of the farts. Oh, yeah, 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 John Young. Charlie, I got the farts. I got them again, Charlie. I don't know what gives them to me. I think it's the potassium and the orange juice. And then like, what I love is the next day, um, the governor of Florida issuing a press release saying, it is not our orange juice that is causing the problem. This is an artificial substitute not made with Florida oranges. <laughs> now, I have been to the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Um, I'm, a, I'm a real born American. And uh, as a real born American boy, I purchased some astronaut ice cream. Is astronaut ice cream an actual thing? <laughs> astronaut ice cream. It went up once. It flew, I believe it was Apollo 8. So three astronauts had it in space, and that was it. It never flew again because it's not cold and it's not creamy. So it's super what gross. is what is the point? It's just this chalky, sweet, horrible stuff. But the marketing, whoever they have, it, a marketing genius because they realize that if you put it in the gift shops, people will buy it and try it once, just like the astronauts. <laughs> in closing, uh, I want you to clarify uh, the issue of Tang. Mm-hmm. Um, and its relationship to the space program. Tang was not invented by the space program. Ah. Tang, it, it's, a, it's what's called a COTS, a commercial off-the-shelf. Oh, wait. Commercial off-the-shelf. Yeah. Commercial off-the-shelf product, as are the diapers that are worn in the spacewalking suits. Do you want to know what brand they used to use? Yes. Okay. It's an adult diaper, and the name of it was Rejoice. (laughs) (laughs) After nine days, I can imagine. (laughs) Mary, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on The Sound of Young America. It was really fun to talk to you. Oh, it was great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Mary Roach is the author of numerous uh, charming and informative books, uh, the most recent of which is Packing for Mars, The Curious Science of Life in the Void. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our associate producer, Julia Smith, our editor, Nick White. Our music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our intern is Christian Natividad. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can download any of our shows absolutely for free. And when I say any of your shows, it's more than just The Sound of Young America. You can also check out our comedy talk shows, Stop Podcasting Yourself and Jordan Jesse Go, as well as our sketch series, The Casper Hauser Comedy Podcast, and more. It's all free at MaximumFun.org. If you have thoughts about the show, you can email me at Jesse at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time, right here on The Sound of Young America. <laughs>